This is Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us to keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. Modern medicine is based on good evidence, randomised controlled trials and so on. This gives us a reliable scientific basis on which to judge which treatments work and why, right? Not necessarily. John Worrell explores our understanding of causal connections in medicine and questions whether randomised control trials are everything they're cracked up to be. John Worrell, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. The topic we're talking about today is evidence-based medicine. What is that? Well, it's a good question. There was a particular movement that began at McMaster University in Canada in the 1980s that believed, rightly or wrongly, that a lot of what masqueraded as evidence in medicine was no such thing. And when you examined it according to the best scientific principles of when you have and don't have evidence for a theory, it didn't stand up. And it set out to rectify that situation, principally via randomised controlled trials. The implication was that they wanted all trials to be randomly controlled. What does that mean? Okay, well, first let's say what a controlled trial is. You're trying the whole time not only to get evidence that the treatment that you're looking at was effective in the sense that the people given that treatment did better than the people who weren't. You want it also to be the case that there's no other explanation, or as far as you can, no other explanation of the fact that the people in the treatment group got better. So what you do in a randomised controlled trial is you assemble a study population and then you create control groups, you create a division between experimental people who are going to get the treatment that you're looking at and the control who are not going to get that treatment. You create that division by a random process such as in principle tossing a coin but in fact it's always via a random number generating machine. In other words you have two sets of subjects, half of them you give the treatment to, half of them don't get the treatment, those two halves are selected randomly. That's the idea. And that's supposed to show whether or not the treatment works because we can see if one side gets better and the other side doesn't get better, it looks like it's because of the treatment. It looks like it. Whether it is is another is another question. The hope is that you control for all possible factors known and unknown. Of course, you could deliberately control for age, comorbidities, general level of health in a quite deliberate way. Obviously, it could be the case if you have a very elderly control group and a very young and fit, on average, experimental group, the fit and healthy were going to get better quicker anyway. So you won't be able to infer from the fact that they got the treatment and they did better that it was the treatment that did it. So I think you always want, and some people denied this, but you always want to control for known possible confounders. What you can't obviously do is control for unknown confounders. It's always possible that there's another factor that you hadn't considered that background knowledge gave you no reason to think might play a role that was in fact maldistributed between the experimental and the control group. And it was that that caused the positive outcome rather than the treatment. And the hope is that by randomising, you rid yourself of that worry because randomization is going to control for all factors known and unknown so that you can, in principle, with total certainty, infer from a positive result that the treatment was what caused that positive result. So what could be wrong with that? That sounds like a very sensible way to go. It would be wonderful if it were true. Most of my criticisms are to do with overly strong view that you only get genuine scientific evidence if you've randomised. In general, it won't do 
harm. And it does do some good in that it controls for what's called selection bias. That is, it stops the clinicians which patient goes in which group. And even if they're not consciously biasing the outcome, they may unconsciously affect it. Obviously, they can't affect whether the number that comes out of the random number generator is even or odd. So if you do it by a random process, then there's no question of any selection bias. What it doesn't do is what many people in medicine believe it does, which is genuinely control for all factors known and unknown. It's always possible for a single randomized division to give you a division that's unequal in some respect. Can you give me an example of where a random control trial looks like it throws up the wrong result? Yeah, a famous case is an Israeli physician called Leibovici who did the following experiment. He took a whole bunch of people who'd been treated 10 years earlier in the Rabin Medical Center in Israel for various blood complaints, thousands and thousands of them. He then divided them into two via a random number generator, called one the experimental group and the other the control group. The experimental group were listed on a piece of paper and somebody said a ecumenical prayer on the behalf of those people who were named on the list And the other people, the people in the control group, were not prayed for. And then when he looked back at the results for those patients who had been prayed for, they were significantly better on average in terms of how long they had to stay in the hospital, how quickly they recovered, than the ones who didn't have a prayer set for them. Well, obviously, in that case, although we did match for what's called baseline imbalances, that is, factors that we have good reason to think might well have a role, but obviously what happened was despite the randomization, this is always possible in a single randomization, there were some or at least one or more likely several factors that did get unbalanced unbeknown to us in that division. And they're the ones that accounted for the positive outcome, not the fact of the remote intercessory prayer. One way to think about that example is that the question of prayer is correlated with an outcome, but it's not causal, as it were. Yeah, that's right. It's just correlated rather than causally connected. We think that there must, in fact, be some extra factor that we haven't yet identified or maybe set of factors that differentiate, on average, of course, the people in the control and experimental groups. And it's that factor or set of factors that's really doing the cause here. It just happens that the prayer was said for one and, and not for the other. That's another way of thinking about the importance of control in general in evidence in medicine and across the board. You're constantly trying to make sure that you aren't fooled into thinking that a connection that's in the data is a causal connection when in fact it's only a correlation. Standard example would be you're dying next week is very positively correlated with being admitted to hospital the week before but laying superbugs and so on aside what's surely going on there is that there's an underlying common cause for a dying next week and b being admitted to hospital now namely that you're very ill and once you control for being very ill then the probabilistic dependence between being admitted to hospital and dying disappears if there's such a fundamental problem with randomized control trials It's odd that anybody's put so much confidence in them. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as a problem. It's just that it doesn't quite live up to the billing. It doesn't do what many people in medicine believe it does and control for all factors known and unknown. It doesn't follow from that at all that it's a bad thing to do in all circumstances. I think there have been cases where we've in effect known that something was effective without doing a randomised trial. In fact, there are a whole list of well-established cases where that's true and where it therefore becomes unethical to do randomised control trials. But there is a very strong positive side. The whole idea of the evidence-based medicine movement was that a lot of treatments that were accepted 
in medicine. Bloodletting is always the example because it's so dramatic. In fact, when tested properly, it turned out to be far from effective. They were not even only as good as placebo, they were positively harmful. So the idea that judgments about the effectiveness of treatment in medicine should be based on evidence is important but trivial. It's obviously correct. The question is the details, and my only complaint is that people make claims on behalf of randomization that are inflated and therefore a view that's less positive than will be justified about non-randomized studies. Which brings us to non-randomized studies. It may be that randomized control trials are not all they're cracked up to be. Might there also be other evidence which is valid but doesn't come through random control trials? Yeah, I think you have to say that. When you look at the number of cases that evidence-based medicine has been successful in showing were first of all thought to be effective and then when you do proper controlled trials or not, compared to the long list of treatments that are firmly understood to be effective that nobody would question, like taking somebody's appendix out if they've got acute appendicitis, giving them a aspirin if they've got a mild headache, and a whole list of endless list of treatments that have never been subjected to randomized controlled trials and yet everybody's perfectly convinced and surely correctly convinced are effective. So it's neither the case that a randomized study guarantees that you've identified a causal connection, nor is it the case that you can't establish a causal connection without a randomized control trial. So it's neither necessary nor sufficient for a reasonable guarantee. Of course, nothing's totally guaranteed, but a reasonable guarantee of effectiveness. I know that when I take an aspirin, when I've got a headache, nine times out of 10, it will work. I haven't done any random control trials. It's always worked in the past. I'm assuming it's always going to work in the future. That's good enough evidence for me, is it? It's evidence that it works. Whether it works because it's aspirin brings us to the issue of the placebo effect. It may be that if you took a sugar pill that you believe to be aspirin, it would also get rid of your headache. So there's a a role for trials. Even there, I don't think that one should take personal conviction as sufficient for a scientific guarantee of underwriting of the evidence for effectiveness. I don't think there would be anything less scientific if I were just simply to sometimes slip you a sugar pill, make you think you got the aspirin. There's only for any elaborate multi-centre, thousands of patients, randomised control study. But you do need to think, what else could it be? This is the fundamental question that you're asking the whole time. And one thing it could be is the placebo effect. So let's control for it. But don't think that you need anything as fancy as a randomised trial to achieve that. Somebody listening to this might think this is all very fascinating and indeed very convincing and random control trials shouldn't hold quite the status that they do in so-called evidence-based medicine. But this is a question for statisticians and mathematicians, not for philosophers, and yet you're a philosopher of science. Yeah, well, I think they are philosophical issues because they're logical issues. They're issues about whether a particular argument that in its strongest form would be that randomization is both necessary and sufficient for genuine evidence for causal connection between treatment and outcome. There's an argument or various arguments for that, and I think philosophers are entitled to look at them just as much as anyone else. Of course, there don't need to be any disciplinary boundaries here. There have been statisticians who have had qualms about randomization exactly on a par with those that I would have. Philosophy of science is often quite an abstract enterprise. You're trying to work out what's the difference between science and non-science, but here we have something which has very practical impact. Yeah, and I'm proud of that. I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think 
that if you can do interesting philosophical stuff that also might have some impact in the way that people operate, then I think that's all to the good. John Wall, thank you very much. Thank you very much. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.